my goal was to replace all of the fake flavor with authentic, real cannabis-derived terpenes because A, it tasted better, B, it represented the plant, and C, most importantly, the effects and longevity of the effects were actually real. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields. With me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Tony Verzura, CEO of Blue River Terps. Tony, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? I'm good, man. I'm good. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Really excited to talk to Tony. Really excited to talk terpenes and the various products, you know, you know, and excited to talk to someone who has a lot of experience from the West Coast. How are you, Brian? That's fair, Kellen. And I know you're really trying to angle Tony here from a West Coast standpoint, <laughs> but I think there's two things when we think about people's, you know, affiliations, right? We talk about where were they were born and where are they currently? So Tony, if you had to choose East Coast, West Coast, you know, where would you stack up? Uh, yeah, definitely. I was born in Hollywood, Florida, not Hollywood, California. Um, then I, my parents divorced, so I grew up actually in the Midwest in Kansas. So I went from, you know, 20 million population to like 10,000 midway through childhood. So that gave me a good, I think, good perspective for both. And, uh, um, some of my experiences, I would say came, uh, I was the youngest of like between brothers and stepbrothers. I was like the youngest of, I think, seven. Um, I think I was the seventh. And then uh, we went on like a European trip uh, when I was like 14 or 15. So that was like first experience going from like Europe or going from England through Amsterdam down to Pompeii, Italy. Uh, it was my dad's way of like teaching me the world in three months. Uh, drop you off in one spot. I'll see you there in three months. Uh, no money, no clothes. Go figure it out. Um, on that trip, uh, Definitely smoked weed, definitely uh, got some old school, like green hash, uh, crazy different experiences there. That was my first turn on. That's where I got my first seeds of skunk seeds. I think it was like 94, 95. And then uh, because of laws and because of like where things were at at that time, uh, I kind of went under the radar for a while until like kind of things surfaced where Colorado was the first place where medical they actually had changed their constitution. Uh, the state constitution amended was amended so that medical was an accepted, uh, accepted thing for caregivers that, you know, had some protection from the, from the federal level. And then I kind of jumped back into cannabis uh, as a caregiver first. I was on the medical side for many years and uh, advocate. And most of my early years is all medical driven, helping patients, helping myself. And, uh, you know, that was where that started. Uh, then I ended up in uh, California because they went wreck in Colorado, believe it or not. So I was like, well, I'm done. I'm not, I'm not sticking around for some recreational sellout. Uh, then I went to California because it was all medical. And then at medical, uh, they also changed it to adult use. And uh, it seemed like everywhere I went, I couldn't quite established like you know it just it those programs always ruin the medical programs they never had like a program where it's like there was a duality that existed in which a fundamental business models helped both sectors because i do think it's really important 
to have both. And that's where I, you know, after meeting like my wife and everything, she's East Coast and I was on the West Coast. Uh, when I, when you start studying policy and you start studying like areas of the country where, uh, that, that portion is, is, uh, still respected. I felt like Massachusetts, the state itself, uh, had a good duality. There's a strong medical program and maybe even at some point the medical is even higher than the, uh, adult use side. So kind of been all over the place, got our, you know, also do some products in, in Florida. So definitely East and West coast. What do you think the biggest challenge is for those markets to balance the duality of the medical and the recreational in order to get it to where you believe? So I think, unfortunately, some, you know, I don't think that you should have a, I don't believe that a state should have um, a limit. So there's what's called limited licenses and unlimited licenses. So that's how I kind of break these two. Like when I look at a state, I'm like, who's unlimited and what's limited? Unlimited would be, you have the ability to grow unlimited cannabis, cannabis. Uh, you have the ability to own unlimited amount of dispensaries. And there's an unlimited amount of licenses that are issued. So a lot of these states, they basically build their programs based on popularity. So they're going to look at a population and say, okay, the average population, 7% uh, is cannabis users on average. Uh, city of Boston, as an example, 14%. See why I like it. <laughs> um, so population differences of those percentages will help these policymakers push that. They also have different lobbyists and different people in their ears. And then you also have like, is it a Republican state? Is it a Democratic state? Are they left? Are they right? You know, Florida being like a, uh, a Republican state that's a little bit more conservative. They have a limited license with an unlimited canopy, meaning there's only maybe 20 licenses and they have a very hard uh, way to get into those licenses. You know, there's a prereq like, oh, you got to be in the industry, you know, in, in uh, for 30 years as a farmer and you have to have certain prerequisites to get that license. So it's a limited operational license, but they can grow as much as they want based on their patient count. So Colorado was like that. They're like, okay, we open licenses. You know, it was a different type of state. You can get you as many licenses. There was one time a thousand dispensaries, and I think it dropped down to three hundred. I don't know where it is now, um, but it was based on how many patients are you caring for? Is your canopy, and that's the strength of the medical. The better you were at growing, the better you were at caregiving. The more plants you were allocated, the more patients you were allocated. I do subscribe to that model in the medical side. I don't. I don't really feel like. Uh, limiting the actual operational licenses uh necessarily help so each kind of state's different you know michigan is probably the second highest consumption state based on volume you know like three billion dollars that state's consuming in cannabis goods medical and, and and recreational if you will but you got to look at that what's the population of michigan versus the population of california there's some heavy 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 smokers in michigan <laughs> if they're if they're number two to California, but their population is not quite the size, so I look at like what's going on there, and uh, that's an unlimited license. So you could keep paying for licenses, which would cost you a lot of money, but you could have two hundred fifty thousand square foot grow indoor. You could have a hundred acres. Massachusetts limited license. You can only have three retail, three grow, three manufacturing, 
it's limited to kilowatt use and square footage. So like you can't really get past 100,000 square feet. It's more like NASCAR driving. So that drives a more craft market, uh, maybe in the beginning when it was first here, 2019 and Massachusetts had a bad rap of having probably the worst weed in the country. I do see that changing because what happens is everyone has to like, they only have so much they can work with. So you end up really honing in the craft. And I see that happening right now where people have to push the craft to be able to uh, sustain and the MSOs and the non-craft aren't going to survive in a market like this. And so you have also caregiver models. So that's the commercial model. It's like, we've got the adult use, we've got a medical, the way the policies are written with the licenses, uh, canopies, and then you have caregivers. So the caregiver model, Colorado, Massachusetts, Maine, Michigan, Florida, all different. They don't allow people to grow their own in certain states. I don't subscribe to that. Like I think as an individual, give somebody the right to grow their plants. If they're not commercializing that and they are at home and they say, oh, I've got my 12 plants, that's not commercial growing. As everyone knows, growing cannabis is very, very difficult. And if you're growing cannabis specifically for making hash, even more difficult. Um, that's like a, that's a true homebrew craft model that I think has to exist because you have a lot of, you have a lot of different statuses of people, what they can afford, where they're at in life. Uh, and sometimes having that individual that grows at home, that makes a topical, that makes a tincture, that makes something that someone you know, that you trust. A lot of times those people are not trying to make any money. They're literally just doing it for the craft. They make a really good product sometimes, in my opinion, much better than a dispensary or even a medical market. Maybe it doesn't have the high testing, but you're being able to get a craft product from a single source grower that if you get to know them, you're going to know right away. A lot of these people are pretty open. Sometimes they spread with their grow. They're like, hey, check it out on the phone. This is my, you know, I'm living soil. I'm all organic. I think when you get down to the micro level of the individual caregiver, they have to be that way. They have to be, they have to be a living soil grower. They have to do something different. And they're not really, they're, those are the most passionate people. They're not really trying to make money. They're trying to uh, help people. And I think that that model has to exist because you've got breeding, you have genetics, you have different people that are going to come up with innovative things on a lot of different levels. And if you don't let them flourish in the market, and I'm not saying flourish to the point where there's a giant black market, but you got to let them flourish. And I think Massachusetts does a good job with those three tiers. All three of those are checked. California is a little bit wild west. The caregiver model, there's so many people living there. Uh, we all know it's the biggest black market. West Coast is the biggest black market. It's been that way forever. Everything gets shipped to the east. It's always been that way. It's never going to change uh, until these policies uh, get to a point where the feds say, you know what, fuck it. Uh, let interstate commerce happen, you know, because you will never get, just like oranges in Florida and oranges in California, you will never get sun-grown California cannabis, you know, in Massachusetts. The sun-grown Massachusetts wheat is not like the California, and it's just because of a lot of things that I'm sure we'll dive into today, but there's reasons for it, um, just like there is Lavender grows in the Northwest, you know, it doesn't grow out in the middle, mid, Midwest, 
wheat grows in Kansas. It doesn't grow in, you know, Michigan. So uh, that's my kind of two cents on like the, you know, what's happening in those like sectors, you know. So from a regulatory perspective, the regulations and how each state are set up from a market standpoint are going to kind of dictate what brands have a chance of success in that market, correct? And so what strategically have you done with Blue River? And kind of if you could just give our audience a little background about your brand and some of the products that you guys focus on and how that has dictated strategically where you've decided to focus your guys' resources and your time based on all these like market factors and regulatory influences. For sure. Yeah. So I started like 90s and I was a grower first. I was a caregiver first. Probably why I have that biased opinion <laughs> to let people uh, grow for themselves. But uh, I was always fascinated with the plant and trying to find things. And uh, when I was in Colorado, we were vertical, we were medical. And like I said, I kind of transitioned out. And there was a moment in time where I was kind of challenged on another show to try to isolate the cannabis terpenes and so like that i like the essential oils of cannabis is like oh wow yeah we haven't really explored that and that was like the first step in uh where blue river got its first step so it's kind of like i was always kind of producing and making products and helping other brands there's a lot of other brands that i helped along the way i was always kind of in the background other hash makers other bho brands i did solvent and non-solvent and cultivation product I always made products as a product maker but I always did it for other people but blue river itself really started when that happened so I was like oh I need to do something with this terpene idea and started like everyone else I was going okay let me try steam distillation let me try these different things that other industries had applied to say lavender or other things once I kind of found my own way, which took a lot of R&D, a lot of fail tech, I then, okay, and then I finally had like a pure vial where I could actually test it. And that also took a long time. Like labs had to start testing for terpenes. And when I hit 98% terpenes in these vials, then I was like, okay, I've, I've scientifically gotten to that. I've gotten rid of the hydrosols. I've gotten all these other things. I got the pure essence of the flower um, in a vial. And my goal was to help people that there was a big dissolute market, big solvent market that everybody was using fake flavoring. They still do today. And my goal was to replace all of the fake flavor and authentic real cannabis derived terpenes because A, it tasted better, B, it represented the plant, and C, most importantly, the effects and longevity of the effects were actually real. Instead of just getting the THC from the distillate and fake flavoring, that's one buzz the modulation of how that THC is entering the body and the mind um, is through the modulation of those terpenes. So that was like the very first start of Blue River and where conceptually like I was going with the company. I was going down this terpene journey, if you will. Uh, I helped popularize the word terps. I was always using the word terpenoids. And then it was like, we got to terpenes. And then when I got to California, I was like, ah, oh, they're terps. You know, and then it was like, Terps, Terps. When I was in Amsterdam, spreading Terps around, someone would call them, called me like Tony Terpene or Terpene, Terp Tony or something. And that's like kind of the first start of the whole Terp, Terp popularization. 
most scientists and people cringed at that word. I was like, yeah, all right, we'll go with this Terp thing. Musicians, different people started pulling that. And then I realized that like, that's where I kind of found my identity. And I think the brand identity was in its early stage. Right. We were like, okay, what, what, what is Blue River? What does it represent? It represents authenticity and of the plant and it represents the quality of that experience. I want to keep it real and I want to make sure that people, when they try Blue River products, they're like, okay, that's authentic to the plant, whatever the product may be. And just being kind of a purist growing up, I think also being, you know, on a farm in the Midwest, like I felt. I felt like whatever product I would make, um, I always wanted to be organic. So if it was a topical, if it was a sublingual, if it was whatever I was making, I realized early on right there is like, I'm done with the bullshit. I'm done with the hot dog water. Um, this is what I want it to be. This is what I want people to remember me and the brand. And that brand identity started there. It's like authenticity, represent plan. And it really, you know, from there, I think California, quite honestly, a lot of support there, uh, did a lot of high-end, small batches. And I started to create like another path. I started making extracts. Like, okay, if I take terpenes and give it, put it with full melt, what happens? Terpenes into rosin, what happens? So it's like anything else. We take it from a level 10 to a level 15, in my mind then, which is we're modulating, we're getting a lot higher than I was before to keep it basic. And so getting a rosin, let's say, you know, uh, mimosa rosin with the mimosa turf at that time, mimosa hash, that was my first like Blue River Awards was 2014. I was mixing terpenes with full melt, mixing terpenes with uh, rosin. I was even putting terpenes in BHO libraries. Highly controversial, uh, won some awards with high times. People started hating on it immediately. Why were they hating on it? So they're hating on it because of and today, and it's funny because we don't, there's not a lot of like anything that we do with ad, we call ad back or reintroduction of, of terpenes. Most people that are hash makers or most people that are making products, they didn't want you to reintroduce something, right? And so like terpenes on full melt, like six star hash was just like, sacrificials like what are we even doing even the hash makers i was with even making rosin then from six star was just an absolute you're absolutely fucking bonkers i how, how dare you turn this six star into rosin with a hair iron and that whole because that happened too we went through that whole phase so i was helping popularize different techniques because i felt we weren't there yet. We weren't able to like really, we didn't learn everything we could about this, this whole new thing going on. Like, okay, what does terpenes do with this, 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 and this? Can I make terpenes water soluble? Can I turn terpenes into powder? Can I use like everything that we think about flavoring and all the different products that are in the grocery store, there was a new world. And I realized that the genetics and the cannabis world also could help us. Like, and so it's like, oh, I'm going to read these two things together. What are they? That's where my head was at. Where their head's at is, hey, you're reintroducing something that's not uh, a single source process. My argument back would be like, we both start with the same pound. We end up differently here. There's no reintroduction of what wasn't already in the plant. So that's where my mentality has always been. It's like, how do we get here? So I bypassed hash and rosin at one point 
and started making like deconstructed solventless extracts, mechanical extracts, basically saying, hey, if I can have, if I can isolate cannabinoids and terpenes mechanically without solvents, then why don't I just design my own shit? Because I was already a formulator and product maker, and I'm already thinking that way. Um, so that was very highly controversial. I skipped, I skipped a bunch of stuff, and people were like, well, show me the hash, show me the rosin. Um, I feel like that probably hurt us, but helped us in some capacity. Um, because people like I came out with something that was like flan, or came out with jelly, or I came out with tyrone, or I came out with interesting different names, which honestly only came because Instagram shadow banned us and blacklisted everything I anything that related to cannabis. So I had to come up with a name that wouldn't get blacklisted. That's kind of like, yeah, the texture was there. It's a favorite dessert. Like I'm high, I'm eating flan. I'm like, yeah, I can make this. And But ultimately it was like, I got kicked off Instagram six times, you know? So it was like getting pretty old. And so I was like, oh, being super stoned, eating a dessert one day. I'm like, there is a flan. And at that we were talking it is my favorite and that is honestly the we met back in 2018 and we i got to try your banana flan and i'd never seen anything like it and i was like what is this so like how do you balance creating new products that are like completely game changers like that with maintaining like the market share of the product that you've already created is there like some sort of like balancing of resources there like how does that work I mean, to be honest with you, I was just like a mad man in a lab when you met me in Oakland. It was like before my wife that I think helped. Um, but I was just getting high, creating, pushing the limits. Uh, I think it needed to get done. And I was like free. I was, I had my own space. I had my own ability and I had my own time. Uh, I had nothing else going on in life. Didn't have a family, didn't have, you know, anything except time yeah so boundaries are being pushed and uh you know i think that like that the flan and the jellies and all these different things that i was doing was coming from the side because what i was doing was i was furnishing cannabis drive terpenes for a lot of these other companies just kind of paying the bills that way there was like lift tickets there was like gold drop there was lemon tree there was a bunch of brands that were like that desire to have authentic cannabis terpenes. It's expensive because it's the cost of flour. The process itself, we were, it was learned how to scale it up. But I was more interested in like kind of designer dabs and like, where is this going? Um, I can tell you there was a lot of learning curve and a lot of people supported and I'm super appreciative of it is that like when you take something that's 20 grams in a jar and you put it into like a half gram or a full gram, it changes. It's just nothing we can do about it. And the jar... And the device at that time, 2017, like we've had to like evolve as an industry so that the extracts and what we're doing uh, has complementary technology. So even this year, we switched all of our jars to Myron Infinity jars. Um, they have a 28 patent tech. They're black. They're violet class. They're the most expensive. But the research we proved for like head loss and evaporation is like you're a consumer you want to get a gram you want the gram to be perfect you want it to be perfect on the shelf while you're dabbing it you don't want it to change a lot of the challenges that i faced was when you get this trichome head and you peel away the skin and now you have the terpenes flavonoids and cannabinoids and you take 
flavonoids out, you take liquids out, you take waxes out, and you get 100% purity of cannabinoids and terps, what's holding it together, right? And that became, you know, like, it almost kind of like, it becomes a part of the environment. So you have hydrophobic, hydrophilic reactions, things that are absorbing water, pushing water away. Your whole world changes versus just hash. It ages, you know, it gets, it goes from blonde, it goes from white to blonde to brown. You know, there's a process to things because there's some fat, if you will, in there. And so a lot of challenges with that. And those challenges pushed me. So the consumers and the people giving me the feedback saying, hey, man, your shit dried up on me. All right, let's get you another one. But it wasn't just that. It was like, you know, we went, we once had jars that had magnetic seals that had like the foil magnetic seals. Those never lost anything. But, you know, subject to Chinese suppliers that say one day, that's not happening. Um, we can't get them into the country or you got to order 50,000 at a time. All these little changes between the jars or devices or technologies uh, that came along and had to adapt and try to make the oil or take, make the extract have a shelf stability, which in that process teaches you how to commercialize or how to scale something up. And you realize this is a scalable product. This isn't a scalable product. Like the flan that we're going to create in 2024, not a scalable product. So therefore, I'm not going to offer it anywhere else in the world except in, in, in our Cambridge and Somerville spots because I'm going to do a dual layer, two gram unit that has all of the years of experience in tech into this perfect two gram unit. It's not about the money. It's about the flex and what could be done as a super concentrate in the world of solids. Same thing with this pioca that we have on our website, taking the flan and taking fresh press and figuring out how fresh press can butter out but stay in this clear consistency so we can have multiple textures. So the designer dabs and super concentrates, if you will, with these textures are also increasing overall tack and terpene, which changes the thickness to thinness of the cloud, as well as the longevity and the types of effects. Like being able to take two textures means I can take two different batches and be able to wash them together or separately and combine them. But also, if you look on the... You know, our new catalog 2024, we have some old school hash, which is just like five star pressed into like hash, uh, cadabit, hash holes. Um, so I then realized, you know, brought on another, another dude like me with 20 years experience who wanted to really champion our extract division. That's Will. He's like my right hand man. He's like, dude, we do really good shit here. Let's get some six star out. Let's get the old school hash out. Let's get some bomb live rosin out. That started a couple of years ago. And he goes, that way there's a baseline of all this stuff. And then as we kind of became more single source and we became more integrated in the grow, which in California, we were on a lonely island. We didn't grow. We didn't, you know, distribute. We were just like a, a stop to a creative center, if you will. Then we realized, okay, you know, how do we make stuff that's like affordable, but extremely high quality and, you know, not price gouge and we've been able to do that um and that's why we have it's kind of like in the car world tesla does a good job at it like you want an electric car you can get one for thirty-five thousand. there's another one for 50 there's another one for 80 there's another one for like 120 but we realized that with the economy and stuff is how do we create like a flan and cap it at 60 a grand you know retail live rising has to cap at 60 grand 
you know, the old school five-star hash, $40 a gram. This stuff has to be within reason. Uh, in California, when you're you know, passing along to a distributor, you pass it on to a retailer, everybody's taking their piece. You know, next thing you know, it's $120 a gram. I mean, it could be the coolest shit in the world, but at $100 a gram, I'm not paying for it. I'm not going to pay $100 a gram. Straight up, those are facts. You're not, you should not have to pay $100 a fucking gram for anyone's extract ever. You know? So all of these things kind of like over the years have really pushed like, you know, how do we, how do we push those different things? It's traditional versus super concentrates. And then in that process, what are we missing here? Uh, how do we take the different grains of the resin glands and categorize them just like in diamonds? A, B, C, D. Uh, what do I want to put in my lungs? I only want 90U in my lungs. <laughs> you know, if I'm vaping, I don't want to go 73. I want to go 73 to 149. For those that are listening, what the hell is that? This is a micron size of the trichome that we're using. And I don't want to use anything that's not five star or six star that goes into my lungs. That's a, that's a small percentage of all of the resin glands. If we use a, you know, metaphor and we looked at a lemon tree and we just like shook the lemon tree, we're basically saying we want the best lemons. We're going to peel those lemons and then we're going to make lemon, lemonade from those best lemons. And then the other ones that were bruised that didn't quite make it, we're going to put them into edibles and we're going to find other things other uses for them, but you have to price it accordingly. Uh, on top of that, also the feedback that I've learned over the years, and this doesn't happen to my own grocery store, and I wish it did, is uh, is that if something gets old, right, because we're dealing with an organic product, just like freshly squeezed juice, it has to go on sale. It can't be $60 a gram the day it fucking drops and three months later. It has to go on sale. Um, so that, that whole concept is coming from years being a caregiver, being a customer, being somebody that like, if I walk into like our dispensary, like people are like, wow, you're selling 20 and $30 grants. I'm like, yeah, it's nine months old. It's the last of something. It's got to go. It's like, I'm not trying to, no one's making money there, but if you charge $60 a gram for something like that and it's, three months old, people are going to be like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not down with that. If it's $40 a gram or $30 a gram, they're like, okay, no problem. You were very transparent. So all these little things like have kind of contributed to that. So how important, how important has access to like these retail locations to talk to consumers? How important has that been for the evolution of all these products that you guys have been? Drives everything. So everyone, would you, would you say that's probably one of the biggest differences from your operation out in California to where you are nowadays in terms of just like the feedback you guys are getting and kind of moving with the market, if you will, because you have that those touch points? I think so. I think that like we did have a lot of that in California, but like those going to know zones, like so we would have to work backwards. Like so if something happened in a store in California, we start like, okay, how's your vault? Do you have a vault that's climate controlled? Do you have climate control on the floor? Most of them did not because they were coming from medical going adult use. We already kind of knew like that was happening with fail tech on different types of devices. You know, the fail rate, we knew there's a certain percentage, but having, you know, several hundred people a day coming in, that's where we're at right now. That is like everything. So, and we're also consumers. So like I'm a consumer, you know, so it's like, like nothing hits the market. Like when we, so every year, 
every year we drop a new a new packaging look, new devices, new jars, new product category. That is because of what you just said. It's all 100% feedback. The people are driving the need of the product. Like, you know how many people have come in and said, hey, man, do you got any old school hash? I'm like, no, what do you mean by old school hash? You know, like an old school brick hash? And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, okay, we could do two levels of that. They're like, what do you mean? I'm like, we'll get some cured stuff, which we'll, we're going to have $30 gram blonde, beautiful fucking hash that is awesome and affordable from cured material. And then I want to do a fresh frozen one. So like, yeah, we could do that for sure. And that's like lots of people coming in. We make a post about it, 20,000 views, 1,500 likes, 300 shares, a gazillion comments. You're like, okay, people want, they want. We're onto something. We're onto something here. And that's fine. And that's, that drives us. Like, so the feedback is super important. I think we could do even a better job. Um, we were talking about it even today with the CX. And being able to have people uh, be able to give us feedback. We've got a thing on our website at the bottom right now that's like, just contact us and, um, you know, let us know, let us know. And, you know, when you hear like 10 things with your device or your vape or different things, then you know, you know, there's something there. And, and I would say like a lot of people, uh, and there's a way to do that with businesses. I would give like a friendly advice, like, Businesses that really care about your concerns are going to adapt. If you put them on blast immediately, like on social platforms, you just start blasting them. Uh, oh, your product sucks. Or you, I've seen this in other brands and other people just like blasting them. You're not really giving them good feedback. You know, like DM them. Tell them, hey, man, I score a female, you know, hey, you know, whatever it is. Um, hey, I've, I've got this product from you. And every time I bought your vape, shit doesn't work, doesn't charge. You know, you keep returning it. I really want this to work and it doesn't work. That's going to go a lot longer than going on their, you know, 3,000 person like page and just blasting them until somebody notices you so you can get free product. It's just not, it's not helpful, you know, or just saying your shit's trash. It's like, it's just like what our world's gotten to. You know what I mean? It's like, there's no boundaries anymore. Um, but like the simple, like you said, having a store and just having a conversation, <laughs> it's just like a simple conversation drives the needle and moves the goalpost a different direction. Uh, is, there, so is there any conversations you've had with customers or any internal creative products that you've been chasing, just haven't been able to yet master that you're really looking, you're thinking about all the time and thinking like, when I nail this, this will be a game changer. So I would say like the device world is still growing. Puffco does a good job, in my opinion, and we're exclusive in Puffco in our stores just because I know Roger, I know the crew. Um, they and they're, are, and they're sick devices too, right? Like, they have three <laughs> levels. They have three levels. They got the, the plus, they got the proxy, they got the, the pro, they got the 3D chamber. They're listening they're listening to their audience. They're like, hmm, how do I make bigger clouds with full control, right? And they're moving the needle. And for us, that helps us move our extracts and we have different things for that. There is like weird things. I'll give you like weird things that don't exist that like are in my mind. Uh, like hash rolls is an example, right? Like 
I don't want to take weed, grind it up, and do uh, rosin down the middle or hash, uh, and have people with gloves on even messing with all that and like making a, 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 a infused pre roll that way and then selling it back to me. For me, it's a little like I'm a very sterile person, and like when we do things, it's like a little bit like I don't want you in my shit like doing all that. I'll buy the components separately and do it myself type of guy. Um, but I do understand that there's a huge need for that. And I think that like having the ability to create a, uh, and there's one out there, but it's not really designed for rosin, but like there's no device that's out there for packaging rosin. So what I mean by that is to get it in the actual jar, or if we wanted to put rosin down the center of a joint, there's no actual device. And that's also why I made flan and jelly because I could put it in a class syringe and I could put it in a Thompson Duke and I could discharge those products that way. So in one way, the packaging and fulfillment is scalable, but like to really be able to nail um, a true like, like badass, like two gram joint with like a rosin hole down the center, like automatically or with a device or a gun that we could actually be able to do that. Uh, is difficult because the texture of the wet matter. And so there's nothing really that's out there. That's something that's in my head that's like, man, if we could just, if somebody could come over there, we're definitely going to work on it. Uh, it needs to be a giant needle, like in some other kind of pressure situation. It needs to be a handy, easy device. You need to be able to put an ounce in there, like be able to go right into a, you know, a joint and be able to do that. Uh, it should be something that's accessible for people that, you know, uh, that are trying to do that commercially because you could do it at your house. Uh, but the device itself, like for vaping as well, things have shifted. We are shifting technologies and hopefully it pans out, you know, um, horizontal ceramic buckets, um, being able to get, for us, live rosin has cannabinoids, terpenes, and flavonoids. Those interactions with alloy and or cotton and or ceramics change the color over time. No doubt about it. Doesn't happen in distillate, but our carts that we have right now, we've kind of switched over to a new thing that's like doesn't have anything. It looks similar technology like Puffco. Imagine a little bucket and a ceramic plate that's down here. It's a lab grade ceramic that heats up, it's porous, the oil goes in and you're just vaping. You're not vaping through anything. I think that you're going to see like everyone's going to end up at least for rosin and solventless, like there's, that's where the tech needs to go. Every single thing needs to be like that. And so that's like, it's still not mastered yet. It's out there. We're working with groups out there. We got something on our website, uh, that's there with Kung Fu and, uh, the, it's early stage of the tech. There's some other cooler shit that's out there that we're working on, uh, being able to mix flavors and two gram units and like, most people are not making one or two gram types of units in the live rosin vape category. I think vape is the biggest growing sector, uh, but it's also the hardest hit sector from the feds and from uh, big tobacco. Everyone is trying to like just smother vaping altogether. Um, and so it's like, while the tech's going this way, policy is going right against it. You know, they're trying to prevent it. So other than that, I mean, I think Flan 5.0, it's going back to where we used to do it. And then there's a tech that's coming out with that. And the tech with our two, our two super concentrates right now. 
I think where that's going is very cool because it's going to lead to another another era. And in the past, I've never shown anyone how I made it, and I'm going to. I'm going to very soon so that like with our site, got the pictures, and now we're going to have a video of how to use it. And I'd like to have a behind the scenes because I actually do want other hash makers to understand the process a little bit more because I think there's misconception and everyone thinks that like I'm over here trying to hoard something. Trust me, after I show you how I actually make it, you're going to be like, yeah, I'm good. I'm just going to, I'm just going to smoke hash. Like why? You know, but there are consumers like you that are like, I want to try something different that can, we can take the terpenes from like six to eight to like, 10 or 12, 15%. We can get our overall purity to 100%. There's ways to get the multi-textured and the multi-strain blend. What I mean by that is imagine flan and fresh press are one's gas and one's fruit. So every dab that you take is going to be unique. And if you have a high tolerance, that's going to uh, appeal to you. If you're a creative type and you want to be able to have a particular type long-lasting effect, you take a flan dab of a, from a terp slurper, like you may go into a very highly euphoric, creative, like kind of shaky experience, right? So as we kind of develop these things, now we're able to say, okay, hash is heavy body, heavy mind, rosin is mind and body, you know, puke is another level, flan is all shoulders up. So we're kind of designing the menu and curating these menus. And that, that, to answer your question is what's pushing it's price point experience and then the tech tech things behind the scenes are always going to be there like how do we scale this up how do we make this easier you know and separating those into the categories makes it very or easier for consumers to understand exactly the type of experience that they're looking for which is one of the biggest challenges that i've seen for newer people in the space right they walk into spencer for the first time they're overwhelmed by the concepts but I want to stick with the terpenes specifically because cannabis-derived terpenes is is obviously your staple, but there are other options out there. And I just want to help consumers out there to, to be able to identify the differences when they do select the product. If they are looking for cannabis-derived terpenes, how would they know which one is Yeah, which? so we actually only have one product that we reintroduced cannabis-derived terpenes back into now, after all that said and done. And it's the fly. And so there's a reason for it, but I'll answer your question because uh, I try to keep everything without reintroduction. Even our vape doesn't have it. We used to do jellies and we used to do it, but uh, it's not. It's not. So something. just when we say re reintroduction, they still have terpenes, but those terpenes are present from what was in the plant material. Yeah, let's talk about it. That's that's where I was going to. So yeah, so we have flower, we have trichomes. There's there's three different types of trichome heads. And then there's actually oils at the very, very microscopic surface of the plant. So let's just, for layman's term, let's say the flower has a group of terpenes and inside the trichome head itself, the resin glands, that has a terpene. If they're alive versus cure, you're going to have a monoterpene versus a sesquiterpene. There's two different types of terpene groups, right? And so like when you think of a skunk and it sprays you, there's thistles, like, these are like really nasty things, but that is present in cannabis. Cannabis has like over a hundred different types of uh, terpenes. And so when we look at the lineage of, of the plant and the species, we say, okay, lavender is, is linalool, right? Well, linalool is found in cannabis. 
Oranges is D-limonene. Limonene is found in cannabis. Terpenolene is found in pines, woods, oils, right? So what's interesting is cannabis also has these. So if you look at cannabis, this is a full spectrum DNA of all these different types of terpenes. So this is really important to understand that the, the availability of cannabis-derived terpenes from the flower itself is in the 100, 150, right? We talk about five or eight dominant ones, but keep in mind that every region of the world that cannabis is growing outdoor is going to produce a dominant terpene profile of those eight. Based on genetics, based on sun and, 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 and elevation. So plants that are grown 1,500, 3,000 or 500 feet and plants that are grown on East Coast, West Coast, Medellin, versus Morocco are going to produce different types of nuances. And that's why you see two different types of oranges. That's why we see different types of grapes. It has to do with how the planet and sun and microclimates work. So genetics sometimes feed into that. And so there's little nuances that can't be replicated. And that's why I said to you earlier, California versus you know, East versus West Coast outdoor is going to be a lot different based on those conditions. That being said, the terpenes themselves are going to be processed differently. So if you see naturally, natural flavor, the word natural flavor in a consumer, or you see something from a brand, the wording is always very vague. It's gonna be like, and I'm just gonna use this one as an example, pumpkin spice. There's no pumpkin spice cannabis flavor. It doesn't come from cannabis. It's a flavor called pumpkin spice. They have those terpenes, maybe organic, from steam, whatever, right? It doesn't matter. It's not from cannabis. So your two categories is cannabis-derived and non-cannabis-derived. Policymakers don't like non-cannabis-derived because those chemicals and compounds, when combusted and or vaporized with, say, THC distillate or high-concentrated oils, uh, with or without let's say a cut, because we went through this for years, like when they're taking vitamin E or they're cutting the THC oil with a cutter, and it could be a terpene-based cut with a non-flavored, non-cannabis terpene. That to me, when I said hot dog water to you earlier, that's hot dog water. That's like Kool-Aid in the packs versus whole food, fresh pressed mechanical juice, right? This is somebody trying to mimic a flavor you're not going to get the effect. You're going to only have one dynamic. You only have THC, active THC from the distillate. Um, they are very creative out there in how they market them. They're not going to tell you this is a distillate pen. They're going to say natural flavors, or they're going to come up with some line that doesn't use words that like jive with cannabis. And I will be straight up. Lots of people come into our dispensary looking for that. And I have a hard line in the sand and I say, sorry, we don't even, we don't even stock it. We don't stock CO2. We don't stock butane. We don't stock ethanol. We don't stock solvent based and we don't stock non-derived cannabis terpene types of products. The state here makes you put cannabis drive or non-cannabis drive. Um, and we're going to talk about cannabis drive in a second, but the non-cannabis drive to me is a health risk. Um, it's like e-juice, e-vaping. We have no idea 
what's going on there. It's an unregulated compound of chemicals that's being put into your product. Yeah, the whole product's being tested, but for a consumer, there's really like these categories. And that's the, that's like our natty light. That's like our bottom of the barrel, <laughs> you know, entry level. And there are lots of people that want that because they live in a comp, uh, compound or apartment building um, that they don't want anyone to smell. Them. That's the biggest reason they tell us. I was like, why do you smoke? Why do you want a plastic vape with fake terps with, with distillate? And the answer is always, it's cheap. It gets me high and no one knows I'm getting high. Fair enough. There is a fucking market there for sure. We don't cater to that market, but you need to be open about it. And I think if dispensaries are open about it and people are open about it, there's that guy that's going to be like, you know, hey, that's what I want. No problem. We just don't have it here. Well, we do. And there are places that just kill it. That's all they do. The second level is cannabis derived terpenes, which are coming from, let's say, CO2. Now, CO2 machines that are out there, they'll take flour and they'll figure out how to evaporate and, and get the cannabis derived terpenes from the flour using a highly like CO2 that's in the air under high pressure. So some would argue, and I think you, you understand this, that CO2 machines actually work probably more soluble than like say a hydrocarbon, which is what we know as BHO, but like hydrocarbon. Uh, ethanol and CO2 are these three other categories. I still consider a CO2 a solvent, not because of the CO2, but because it is dissolving the plant, the flower itself, like ethanol or butane. There's a dissolving of the flower into an oil, which then has a post-process. So if they're taking that process and they're heating it or they're boiling it, it's no longer an unadulterated solve this product it is a dissolved process with water ice water extraction the heads aren't being dissolved it's being used as a carrier that we then carry the heads through water and we dry them and now we have the fruit it's kind of like washing your fruit and then putting it to the side co2 ethanol and butane are there now nobody really does ethanol terps there's co2 terps and there's butane butane in my opinion and, I, and i've been on both sides of this that's a live resin product, okay? Live resin means that a hydrocarbon is used to pass through the full plant material. And there's polarity, non-polarity types of properties in these things. Water and say hydrocarbons have complete opposite polarity. Polarity is super important when it comes to terpenes and when it comes to what we're talking about because terpenes are, hydrocarbons they are hydrocarbons so when you said why do people were hating on me putting terpenes back into hash and back into rosin before to their mind i'm putting a hydrocarbon back into a solvent product now if i showed somebody that i'm actually taking the terpenes from the hash and the rosin we might have a different conversation which after four years when you see the videos everyone's gonna be like okay maybe <laughs> Maybe he wasn't doing what I thought he was doing. So there's ways to extract terpenes from extracts versus terpenes from flowers. And so I'm still on the flower category. And so what people are trying to do is we, we started it. It's remove the terpenes first and then remove the THC and then combine them together. We did that before. That was like the second level. So it's a cannabis-derived terpene with a distal. So you've got 
distillate fake terps. You've got cannabis-derived terpenes and distillate, which can come from CO2 or can come from the method that we were doing before. And then there's hydrocarbon, which is going to capture the terpenes with all of the flavonoids. It's Hydrocarbon is actually the true full spectrum. Like if you do it right and you do full recovery, which means you don't have any of the butane and the hydrocarbon left behind, um, I will give, I will give respect due to those that know what they're doing. You're one of them from what I, from what I understand that's on the show. Full recovery hydrocarbon can get a high terpene fraction, can get high terpenes, high cannabinoids and make an unbelievably flavorful product in one single pass. So I put fake terps and distillate here, cannabis derived terpenes from CO2 with distillate here. I put live, live resin here, and then a unadulterated live rosin, which would be removing the heads from the flower material and then making that into an extract through a mechanical without any reintroductions. So your consumer, it's super fucking complicated because everyone markets this, this, pyramid thing completely different to the point where I have friends that buy our products that will show me a BHO product and be like, hey, try out this live rosin. And I'm like, oh yeah, no, that's a live resin. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, and they're hanging out with me all the time. I'm like, oh my God. I was like, I got super extensive blogs. If you go on our pages, like crazy long blogs describing none of that matters because that product didn't actually say live resin on the product. So even the live resin makers aren't putting the word live resin on it because they're, they're afraid that it might deter people. The point of all this is that as consumers get educated, and I'm, as I'm explaining this to you, I'm going to explain it to you like you kind of gave me an example. If you came to me and said, hey, I want freshly squeezed orange juice, and I took the oranges and I made you orange juice and I handed it to you, you're like, great, eat bucks. Thank you. It's fucking phenomenal right from your farm. If I said to you, I took those oranges and right in front of you, I put them into a fucking container. I said, hold on a second. I turned on a gas and I ran it through your fruit. And I said, don't worry. Don't worry. Everything's under control. I'm going to fully recover that gas and out comes your orange juice. Testing wise, there's no, there's no chemicals in this, right? You're a consumer. You're going to look at two glasses. I just saw this dude press oranges and I just saw this over here. They look exactly the same. They test exactly the same. But you as a consumer, when you find out what's going on, you may not want to drink the other one. And that's what's happening. And so there's a huge spike in, let's say, solvent estate. It's the fastest growing sector in the cannabis market because it's the fastest educational market because as consumers are picking up packaging and, and price point is going to dictate. So you're going to pick up a bank and go, 10 bucks. 12 bucks per gram, that's ding, 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 number one. <laughs> like, that should be alarm bells going off that, like, nothing's 12 bucks. Like, unless something's like you're going out of business or you're trying to get rid of something. Um, but generally, like, the price point also in our industry has kind of helped dictate that. Live resin, live resin is always going to be like $40 per gram. Live rosin is going to be like $40 for half a gram. It's always going to be more expensive. I think that that is the biggest uh, barrier there is the price point. Um, but that's what we work on every single day. How do we, how do we 
bring that price point down so that we can mainstream. That's basically what Blue River is doing. How do we mainstream solventless to the masses with the most affordable uh, access possible? Because if it's not affordable, all that shit I just said ain't going to matter. Somebody's going to be like, I don't give a fuck. If it tastes good and it's the right price and I get high, I'm good. All right, let's do prediction time. Tony, do you see a world where a consumer can select individual terpenes and or cannabinoids to blend for a personalized product experience? Why or why not? There are some things that are out there, technology that's out there that already exists uh, that I know about. and People are pushing products like that. I do think that that is a yes, that it, it exists. Do I think that it will take off depends on what the inputs are you want to give an example if right or left so like what i was just saying like if you go to a machine and you're like i can get thc diamond thca diamonds thc or terpenes and the components the inputs aren't like say all organic or naturally derived or has a technology behind it that the consumer feels comfortable about it then uh it's not going to fly it's a cool device but it won't fly I also think there's also a lot of weird room. I hate to say this, but like with 3D printers and shit out there, like there's a whole nother world of like things that could happen that like we don't want to talk about. But just like when someone's like, oh, you know, there's people out there trying to make food with 3D printers right now. And there's food being developed. And it's it's a need. I can't, I can't like if we're talking future future. Like the extracts we're talking about today, somebody may be able to, and there's going to be a smart kid that figures out, okay, I can get a hundred terpenes. I can get these cannabinoids. I can get this from the genetics. I can read a profile. I can program something. I can get the carbohydrates, the proteins, blah, blah, blah. And I will be able to hit a couple buttons and out comes the perfect extract or the perfect oil. I do think that will happen. I just don't know if it'll happen while I'm still alive. Um, but I, I agree. I do. I do think, unfortunately, that will happen. You just found Kellen's next project to work on. If you want to work on it together so we can make sure that it's uh, an authentic experience, I'm down. Yeah, we will. And we're going to take it. We'll make it so that the printer cartridge is actually just raw atoms, right? So there's no like different terpene cartridges. It's just a cartridge of like raw hydrogen. And we're going to make he will make all the different atoms, the carbon, and then we'll put them into molecules. We'll do all of that stuff just from the grounds. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that, like I said, I kind of know about your background. I don't think that that's crazy. Actually, it's not. They're actually they're doing that right now. There's there's food printers where they're 3D printing food, and then there's also like think about like all the chemical synthesis that goes on, right? So they have these small reactors now that are automated where they just have like a reservoir of the basic building blocks for the majority of organic synthesis. And they're able to make like entire libraries of different compounds in these like miniaturized yeah. like reactors, right? Essentially. So you essentially, it's like be a small reactor with a cartridge of uh, building blocks that then build any molecule you want. And then that molecule in the concentration is made, goes into a storage thing and you just make all the molecules that you're creating from a profile perspective. You know, so I, I, geek out and I follow this kind of stuff on the side. Like these are the things that like I grew up with uh, the the uh, popular mechanics, like as a kid, like I'm just, I nerd out like on this kind of stuff. I agree with you on that. I think it's going to be as like you to answer your question, Ryan is like, remember when we only had analog to guitar amps 
And then we went solid state. So for those that like were too young for this, like electricity would travel through vacuum tubes, which then we had knobs, which then we create with a guitar or instruments. We can create, we can manipulate electricity and sound. Then they became a solid state, which is like a board that does the same thing. I'm a tube guy. I'm a musician, so I'm a tube guy versus solid state guy. I like the warm tube feelings, but that's the same thing we're talking about just in molecules and in what's happening. Uh, I do think that when, you know, I look at the world meter, you know, that website, like world meter, have you ever yeah. seen that? Like if anyone's never seen that, it's like that website, like these world meters, Google world meter. And it shows you like everything that's going on in the world. How many people are being born? How many people are dying? What's the carbon output? How much water is being used? Uh, how many days we have left for like uh, coal? I think it was 147,000 days, 57,000 days left with gas. Um, you see all this stuff being consumed and like everyone's like so consumed in the news and like what's the headlines you should be looking at the world meter of the total resources of shit because two people are being born and one person's dying like every every day like twenty seven thousand or hundred thousand every day which means more consumption so what you're talking about unfortunately for the world population is a hundred percent necessary yeah we have to move to something that for food purposes and resource purposes, uh, you know, there's going to be a ton of other uh, sources. Like there won't the batteries we know today, the solar panel, how we deal with electricity today, all going to be gone. Like yeah. there's other that's out there that we haven't even tapped into yet. You know, I couldn't agree more. And uh, and from a cannabis perspective, I think a product that would be successful would be kind of like uh, not individual terpenes. But kind of going into like your realm, it'd be more of like a, I don't know if you remember those like fun stick things where you had like a little stick and like four different sugar flavors and you'd like lick the stick and like jam it into different sugar flavors. If you had like something like that, where it was like four different strains of cannabis and like some, some dabbing material, I bet you could get a product like that to be successful. It's funny that you say that. (laughs) We were talking about that. In our 2024 catalog, I was like, man, I want to do a fun dip. Like, like, that's what it's called. Fun dip. (laughs) Fun dip. And I was like, ah, I think it's it's too early. (laughs) It's like people are going to, just because you got to be careful with kids and stuff. But no, I agree. I agree. I think that like uh, that, I think there's things for like our parties. Like we're, we've got these like kind of private parties. We're going to start throwing these sessions. Um, there'll be cool things at individual private parties that I think will evolve. And I think that scene, we haven't had consumption yet, you know, where someone's like, Hey, you can have a consumption lounge. You can have a legal license. When we get to that, a lot of cool stuff, like what you're talking about and with this machine is going to happen. Um, I did like cotton candy, terpene cotton candy, rosin popcorn, like, you know, uh, different things. When I did the terp cotton candy, very hard to make, but, um, Everyone that got that was like, dude, what is what is going on here? You know, and what didn't get you high? So it was like just a just a cannabis experience. Um, but yeah. What do you think, Brian? I mean, it's hard to to really follow up those, but I mean, all I could envision was like a soda machine and the ability to have like the individual uh, selections there, which is just exciting. But I think the the important part is that like someone like yourself, Tony, is pushing the boundaries and doesn't let the masses dictate kind of the product categories that you think are necessary to sell. And and I appreciate that um, from your approach. So Tony, for our listeners, they want to get in touch. They want to learn more about Blue River. Where can they find you? BlueRiverTurps.com. Cool. We'll link it up in the show notes. Thanks for taking the time. This was fun.
Guys, if you've enjoyed this podcast over the last few years, can you please take three minutes or less and leave us a quick review on Apple or Spotify? All reviews make a massive difference for us and help other people like you find this podcast. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, this is Cheryl Murray Powell Esquire, and I'm the host of the Terps in the City podcast. I am a cannabis agricultural dietary supplement and trade attorney. I'm also a hemp farmer, and I've been recently named to the list of High Times Magazine's top 100 influencers in cannabis. I'm inviting you to follow me along my journey as I move back to New York to support the adult use market there. You're going to get a chance to listen to conversations with some of my friends along the way. I look forward to seeing you at Terps in the City.